outstanding mission work. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as we transition to the Word of God, uh, as promised, uh, we're going to have a couple of weeks talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, I was checking out some of my notes, and I actually started announcing this back in August, August 6th, actually, because in August 6th, we were reading in Genesis chapter 6 about Noah. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be prior to my second coming. And so I remember saying at that time, well, we'll talk about that. I'll incorporate a couple of lessons uh, about the second coming. And then didn't really have a piece about it, and we came to last week to uh, Genesis 19, and it was the judgment on Sodom. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Lot, so it shall be prior to my second coming. So uh, as the Lord would have it, here we are today. Uh, and I'll just tell you that this morning, I want to talk about uh, the Lord's second coming in relation to Israel. And uh, an honest, honest, I did not come up with that because of what's been going on in the last month. Honestly, it was a lot of prayer. I've actually been wrestling with this a lot. I've been very anxious about this because, well, for various reasons. But, um, and that's what the Lord said to do. And in light of what's happened since October 7th, seems pretty interesting to me. So why a sermon on the second coming? Um, because Jesus referred to the judgment, worldwide judgment in Noah's day, and he referred to the judgment upon Sodom. And using those two uh, occasions, those two historical things, he told us to be aware of things prior to his coming. Uh, another reason for me talking to you, the church, about the second coming is that in Matthew 24, which is the famous chapter, Matthew 24, where the Lord goes off on a, on a monologue about things to look for prior to his coming. And that was prompted by his disciples asking, what's going to happen before you come again? And the Lord went off and told them. But in that, he said, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. I take that personally because I know that he has called me to be a small servant in his big house, which is the church. And he says in the context of things related to his second coming, it's my job and it's the job of Pastor Eric and Pastor Andy, your leaders, to talk to you about the second coming. That's what he said. So it's important that you and I experience biblical messages that relate to the Lord's second coming. Another reason that I can ground myself on for standing here and talking to you, I probably could stop right there. Jesus said to do it, so I'm doing it. That's good enough. But another reason, and you may not be aware of this, but as Paul planted churches, do you know that he preached the second coming? He would preach the first coming, the gospel, and then he would teach the church about the second coming. And we know that because of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. 
First and second Thessalonians. Those were the first letters Paul ever wrote. And some of the first places he ever went when he came to the continent of Europe. And he kept, and in every, at the end of every chapter in first Thessalonians, he talks about the second coming. So that's pretty interesting. Paul spent three weeks in Thessalonica. He preached the gospel. A church was formed. And he goes, oh, and by the way, your Savior's coming again. And so he would talk to them about the second coming just as much about the first coming. As a matter of fact, those who do the math on these kind of things, they've figured out that one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament refer to the Lord's second coming. One out of every 30 verses. 24 out of the 27 books of the New Testament refer to the second coming. If you want a little homework, figure out which four books of the New Testament don't refer to his second coming. Philemon is one of them, I can tell you that. So my focus today, as I said, is Jesus and the Jews. Jesus and Israel. It sometimes goes overlooked. When we dive into the book of Revelation and we look at Old Testament scriptures, we see some of the crazy stuff that's going to happen and we lose track of the fact that one of the purposes in the Lord's coming is to draw his people back to himself. So as I get started here, I just want to ask a couple of questions, church. Do you believe Jesus of Nazareth will literally, physically, visibly reappear on this planet? You don't have to answer out loud. I'm just asking you to think to yourself. Do you believe that? He's going to come riding down out of heaven on a horse. <laughs> Do you believe in the end of time? Not just that the clocks are going to go back an hour, <laughs> praise the Lord, but that they're going to get turned off forever. Do you believe that? It's going to happen. Do you believe in the end of the world as we know it? And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth? That's what God teaches us. And this last question to launch me into the study this morning. Do you believe the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people and that God is done working with the Jews? And I'm here to tell you, he's not. And he's not done working with Israel. Yes, God has established a church made of Jew and Gentile. But he has made a covenant with those chosen people, and God keeps his promises. He's made a covenant with them. We read it back in Genesis 15. He established a covenant with Israel. Abraham watched as a burning oven and a flaming torch passed through the divided pieces of, of flesh which was a way of establishing a covenant. And God walked through alone. It was a, God symbolically showed up, and he went through and established that covenant by himself, which means he took full responsibility for our side and his side. And that was a covenant. He said, because Abraham had said, how do I know that I'm going to inherit the land and that my family, and I don't even have a family, I just have a wife, how do I know that we're going to turn into this nation and that we're going to live on this land? And the Lord said, I'm promising you, it's going to live way beyond your time, Abraham, and I'm establishing a covenant with you to prove it. 
So God is not done. That's why Paul wrote Romans 9, 10, and 11, in case you're wondering. He's establishing because Paul knows that the church had predominantly become Gentile. And so the typical question or the logical question in the minds of most of the Gentile Christians is, there, is God, what about the Jew? Paul would famously say, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. I also am an Israelite. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Again, in Romans 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? And then Paul made a very important statement in Romans 11, 25 and 26. I do not desire brothers, and he's talking to us, the church, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. And he tells us what that mystery is. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and so all Israel will be saved. Concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the sake of the fathers. In other words, because of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all Israel will be saved, nationally will be saved. And that happens when he returns. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, verse 37 to 39. These are actually some of the final words that Jesus speaks publicly to the people there in the temple. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's referring to his second coming. My brothers and sisters, you know that when Jesus got on a donkey and he rode into Jerusalem, all the people said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's already happened. He's saying goodbye to his people, but he's saying, when I come back, you're going to be very, very happy to see me. Turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to work our Bibles here a little bit this morning. So if you've got a digital Bible, you'll find your chapters quickly. If you don't, that's good. Turn your pages. Acts chapter 1. The Lord is risen again here in Acts chapter 1. He's assembled with his disciples. And they said to him in verse 6, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
You see, they, they knew that there were promises that were made. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of all men. We know that. But there were promises that were made specifically to Israel that had not yet been fulfilled. So they asked the logical question. And the Lord said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Verse 9. Now when they had spoken, he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. My brothers and sisters, when Jesus had his great ascension, when he departed physically, literally, visibly from this earth, his resurrected body went up into heaven. He was standing on the Mount of Olives when that happened. That's what that's telling us. Now that's amazing to me because Zechariah 14 verse 3 says that the Lord will go out fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.3 is a prophecy of the Lord's second coming. And it tells us in perfect coordination with what happened here in Acts that when he returns again, literally, physically, visibly, he's coming to Israel. He's not coming to London or Sydney or New York City. Certainly not coming to Ithaca. (laughs) He's coming to Israel. He's coming to the Mount of Olives. His feet will touch down. It's literally what it said in Zechariah 14.3. So the Lord is not done with Israel. And when we start talking about the end times, the last days, however you want to refer to it, then I want you, church, to be mindful that one of the great things that God is going to do in the last days is he's going to draw his people back to faith in him. All Israel will be saved. I don't believe that it means every single Jew in the country of Israel. I think it means that nationally they will come to faith. Many will. Because he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem, by the way, for a thousand years when he returns. So I'm just focusing our attention this morning in Jesus and the Jew. So what I want to do now is I want to talk about the divine timeline. What is the divine timeline to events in the last days? And then I want to talk about where are we today in that timeline? And thirdly, what do we do? So go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Four little verses that are so profound (laughs) that give us the divine timeline for the end of time. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And I'll walk through this with you briefly. And then we'll talk about where are we today and what do we do. And we'll close with communion. Daniel 9, 24. By the way... um, Daniel 9, verse 1, this is Daniel. He's living in uh, Iran. Uh, He was taken captive by the Babylonians who were taken over by the Persians. And Daniel stayed there his whole life. He was just a young boy, maybe just a teenager 
when he was taken captive. He spent the rest of his life in this foreign land, became an amazing man. But um, I just wanted to point out to you in Daniel 9, verse 2, it said, in the first year of his reign, that is, uh, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So I find that just a fascinating and good lesson for us. Daniel was reading his Bible. He was reading his contemporary, Jeremiah, who had written down some prophecies who had said that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. Daniel looked at the timeline. He goes, dude, we've been here 70 years. We're going home. <laughs> and so then he goes into prayer. Verse 24. By the way, Gabriel, the angel, is talking to him right here. This is the angel Gabriel who talked to Mary. Same angel. He says to Daniel... Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Okay? So, 70 weeks. It is uniformly and unanimously understood, as you guys probably know, I hope you know, but if not, I'll tell you, it's 70 sets of seven years. A week, in this context, is a period of seven years. And I'll prove that to you in a moment. All right? 70 weeks. It's 70 sets of seven years each. A week is seven years. You got it? A week is how long? Seven years. Seven years. 70 times seven... <laughs> You guys struggling with that? <laughs> they got their calculators going. 490. Thank you, Esperanza. Well done, Mumi. <laughs> 490 years. And I'll prove that to you in a moment. That it's not, a week is not seven days. Because the prophecy, the, the divine timeline only works understanding it as a period of seven years, 70 times seven. Do you ever hear anybody say that? How many times should I forgive Jesus? 70 times seven, Peter. Or in other words, until I come again. That's just the way that you live. All right, so that's what we're talking about here. The divine timeline is being, is being laid out for us here. 70 weeks, and a week is seven years each. Now, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Gabriel, speaking to Daniel, says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Who's Daniel's people? Anybody? Um, are we clear on this? Who's Daniel's people? <laughs> Jabez. Yeah. The Jews. This, this, is determined, this is specifically for the Jews, for your people. And your, where's their holy city? What is their holy city? Anybody? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So don't lose track. The divine timeline, Jesus and the Jews. His second coming is to regather the people back to faith in himself and to fulfill the promises that he made in his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Here's Gabriel giving the divine timeline. 70, 490 years are determined for your people. For your people, your holy city, to finish the transgression. It means that transgression will be finished. Transgression is rebellion. To make an end of sins. That means there's no more sin and the guilt and the shame that comes with it. We're talking about, uh, it's, it's, we're starting to understand that this is, yeah, that happened when Jesus died on the cross, and I can relate to this on a personal, individual level, but we're talking here about it could only be true when Jesus comes again. There's no more rebellion. There's no more sin. Hey, when I became a Christian, guess what? I still have a sin nature but not true when Jesus comes and we are resurrected or taken up to him and he establishes a new kingdom. He goes on to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. It means to lock it up, it's no more. There will be no more prophecy. It will be the end of all prophecy. Because it's the end of time, it's when Jesus comes again. And to anoint the most holy place. Now, this was spoken to Daniel and to his people, to the Jewish people, to Israel. And it's spoken about their holy city, Jerusalem. Therefore, know therefore, now here we go. Know therefore and understand that that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, your Bible probably says, an anointed one, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So what Gabriel does is he takes those 70 and he slices it into three parts. There's, a, there's seven weeks, and a week is how long? What's seven times seven? 49. Mackenzie had it first. You were right there, Esperanza. All right, 49. 62 weeks, what's 62 times seven? It's 434. Um, I wrote it in. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, and then, so, seven weeks. So what's 62 plus seven? 69. How many weeks are determined? 70. So he slices it into three parts. Seven, 62, which leaves one week, which is a period of seven years. That's where we come up with the idea that the tribulation period that comes at the end of time is seven years long. And I'll show you that in a moment. So, this is very, very interesting. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, not go build your temple, that's what the kings of Persia said to Ezra, go build the temple. But Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah a command. Nehemiah chapter 2, you can read it, 1 through 6. Go build the walls of the city. Go build Jerusalem. And I'll just tell you, I've read a lot on this, okay? March 14th, uh, 445 B.C., is when Artaxerxes told Nehemiah, go build Jerusalem. 
oh, now that's interesting. Because Gabriel's telling us that uh, after 483 years, 69 times 7, Messiah shows up. That's what he just said. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 69 periods of seven years is 483 years or 173,880 days. I find it interesting that when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem in Luke 19, everybody said, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus started crying. He started crying and he says he wept over the city. And he said, would that you even you had known. Would that you, Jerusalem, Israel, would that you, even you, had known this day. If you want to read about it, uh, a guy named Robert Anderson, Sir Robert Anderson, uh, lived in the 19th century, and he wrote a book called The Coming Prince, and he spent a lot of time working out the math. March 14th, 445 B.C., when the order was given to Nehemiah, and then you work out the period of time in 360-day calendars, and it's believed that when Jesus got on that donkey and presented himself for the one and only time, the one and only time where he publicly presented himself as the king of the Jews, riding in on that donkey, that it was 173,880 days to the day. And perhaps that's what Jesus is referring to. He said, you... If you, even you, had known this, thy day, if you had been reading like Daniel had been reading, Jeremiah, you would have been looking, where is he? According to the calendar, the Lord should be showing up. Well, he did show up. Quite interesting. By the way, I read one man who said, nobody can dogmatically disprove that. A lot of people try. They come up with different calendar mathematical things. I'm just putting it out there for you to stimulate some interest in your own, in the word of God, in relation to Jesus. Well, he says at the end of verse 25, the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. Well, that was certainly true. Nehemiah had a lot of trouble, took, you know, 50 years to complete Jerusalem and get it com completely restored and inhabited. Notice verse 26, after 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off. Cut off means put to death, but not for himself. Now we know that. That's the cross. Right after Jesus presented himself as the prince, the king, they crucified him. Four days later, as the Lamb of God, taken for the sin of the world. And here's very interesting. And it says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. It's pretty universally understood that that is a prophecy of the destruction of, Jer of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. A.D. 70. Uh, Roman general Titus was ordered by Caesar Vespasian to lay siege to Jerusalem. 
because the Jews were revolting. They were rebelling against Roman occupation. Started in 67 AD and by 70, Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The temple gone. That beautiful temple. Remember when Jesus was walking through the temple proper with his disciples in Matthew 24? And the disciples are like, they're elbowing the Lord. They're like, look at this beautiful place. And he said, yeah. He goes, not one stone will be left upon another. He was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem that Daniel's referring to, that Gabriel's referring to here. So we see the Lord coming. We see the Lord being cut off, but not for himself. And we see that Jerusalem is destroyed. Now notice, I want to draw your attention carefully, verse 26, in the people of the prince who is to come. It's not the prince. It's the people of the prince who is to come. Well, the people were the Romans. Now now remember, there's one week left. 69 weeks have been fulfilled. There's one week, period of seven years, that is unfulfilled. And that, I believe, is still yet in the future. Verse 27, then he, that is the antecedent there, it goes back to the prince of those people. Then he, that prince of those people that came and destroyed Jerusalem, shall make a covenant or confirm a covenant or a treaty with the many for one week. There's the final week. There's the seven years. And the many there is, remember, Gabriel's talking to Daniel about his people in his holy city. And so this prince that's coming, it's the Antichrist. He's going to make a treaty with Israel. And it's going to be a seven-year treaty. It says, but in the middle of the week, what's half of seven? Hello? Is it too warm in here or what's up? 3.5, thank you. Isn't that fascinating? I find it fascinating. Because when I read Revelation, I keep getting these little time stamps. For example, Revelation 11. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years. This one who's coming, who apparently has ancestral roots in Europe is going to make a covenant with the people, many of the people, Israel, and uh, in the middle of those seven years, 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days, he's going to break the covenant. Again, Revelation 11, they will trample the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. That's three and a half years on a 360-day calendar. Revelation 12, the woman fled to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. That's Revelation. That woman is Israel who brought Jesus into the world. We're in Revelation right now, which is tying us back to Daniel. Revelation 13, 5, he, the Antichrist, was given authority to continue for 42 months. Interesting. Verse 27 again, but in the middle of the week, in the three and a half year period, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. 
Okay? So this prince who is to come, who apparently has ancestral roots in the Roman Empire or Western Europe, makes a treaty with Israel for seven years, which is that final week. Because Gabriel said, and he's an angel and he can't lie, 70 years are determined on your people in your holy city. 69 weeks have been fulfilled. We've proven that because Jesus has come and gone again. By the way, between chapter, verse 26 and 27 is the church. This is the church age. A long pause between verse 26 and 27. We're, not, we're used to that. We have no problem with that, right church? Amen. <laughs> A virgin shall give birth, Isaiah 7, 14. Okay, that's interesting. Unto you a child will be born. Unto you a son is given. Divine, human, child born, son given. Isaiah 9, 6. We waited a long time for that to happen. Between 26 and 27, there's a long pause. We're there now. We're waiting for this prince to come who makes a treaty with Israel. They haven't made a treaty with anybody. Their own independent sovereign nation. Hey, Oz, tap that cool down in here, if you would, please, on the temp. We'll wrap it up here in a minute, friends. Daniel 9, 24 to 27 are foundational, foundational to understanding revelation. My friends, <laughs> that's why when you read Revelation... There's such a Jewish flavor about it. There's like 144,000 Jews from 12 different tribes. Each tribe has 12,000 men. Do you know in Revelation, the word lamb is used to describe Jesus more than any other book in all the New Testament? 26 times. The lamb. Why? Because the Jews love the lamb. It was the lamb who saved them out of Egypt. That's why they keep a Passover. He's presenting himself as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lamb, lamb, lamb. That's why the Antichrist is called, he has like two horns like a lamb and he speaks like a dragon. Because he's a pseudo-Christ. As you can put that picture on the screen of the man with the phylactery on his head and arm. You come to Revelation, we hear about the mark. What's the mark of the beast? I don't know. But I know this, that it's supposed to be on your head and on your hand. Why do you think the Antichrist is doing that? Because he's trying to get a people group to follow him in mockery of the Jew. Because he knows that God's made a covenant with them. He builds a city called Babylon, and it's to rival Jerusalem, the holy city. The Antichrist himself is going to apparently receive a fatal blow and then come back. And he's going to have a false prophet. We have a false Christ and a false prophet, Holy Spirit, who does signs and wonders. Revelation has a decidedly decidedly Jewish flavor to it. Yes, it affects the world. Yes, 100% it does. But one of the points that I'm trying to make with you is that when Jesus comes again, it's a regathering of blinded 
Jews to himself. As Paul said, all Israel will be saved. Jesus said it. You're going to say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That's what he told them. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're going to cut me off. I'm going to die. Not for myself. I didn't do anything wrong. I did it for everybody else. Friend, you know what? If you have a warm spot in your heart for Israel, if you have a bias toward Israel, you don't have to apologize for that. Jesus does. And he lives inside his church. I think it's very natural. We also know that he loves all people. And so we're not only for the Jew. We're for anybody, any person. He's the propitiation for the sin of the world. 1 John 2, 1. So where are we on the timeline? Well, I don't know if I can... You can't overstate the significance of the fact that Israel exists as a sovereign, independent nation. You can't overstate that. Brothers and sisters, where are we in the timeline? We're near the end of the timeline. Because it was prophesied, Ezekiel 36, 37. You know the Ezekiel 37, the dry bones, you you sing the song, right? There's a great song, great sermons about dry bones, having a spiritual. They've come together, breathe in them. It's revival, it's life. It's about Israel. Those spiritual applications are wonderful. That's not what the chapter's about. It's about God prophesying through Ezekiel saying, I'm going to reform my nation. I'm going to bring them back in the land. These bones are the people of Israel, Ezekiel 37. Behold, I will open their graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. They are there. An Antichrist is coming. The prince of the people is going to come when he's going to stop the sacrifice and offering. Now, there's a problem because they don't have a temple yet. That's going to get resolved somehow. A lot of people think that's going to be part of the seven-year deal, the treaty. That he's, there's going to be a, an allowance made, go ahead and rebuild your temple. But, you know, whatever. We're, we're speculating here. But this I know, that it was prophesied. And matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation prophesied by Daniel in the temple, run. And I hope your flight isn't on the Sabbath. Who cares about the Sabbath? Anybody? The Jew. So where are we? Well, Israel's in the land. That's a very, very big deal. Global anti-Semitism is on the rise. It is on the rise. Global anti-Semitism is on the rise. I don't that speaks for itself, based on what we've seen in the last three weeks. But that's actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Ezekiel, or Zechariah 12 says, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, 
and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. That's a prophecy of just before the Lord returns. Now that's interesting. We have Israel in the land, and we have the whole world not liking them. And it's prophesied by God through Zechariah, all the nations of the earth will gather against Jerusalem. Interesting. Um, another thing, where are we today? There is an alliance of nations. There's an alliance of nations. I was put the uh, picture on the map of the map of the Middle East. The one that shows the other one, please. Yeah, I wanted to show you that one because it includes uh, China, India, Russia, right? Because here's little Israel right here, right? Iran, Iraq. So there is an alliance of nations as prophesied in Ezekiel 38, and I encourage you to read it, Ezekiel 38, 1 through 6. Nations are going to come down. They're going to invade the country of Israel. This is future. They're going to invade the country of Israel, and those nations comprise Iran, Iraq, Turkey, very likely Russia, Syria, Lebanon. Countries in northern Africa are mentioned. Here we are today, brothers and sisters, in a time like never before. You would almost think that Mr. Putin and some of the people of these nations are getting together, reading Ezekiel 38, going, oh, this is what we should do. It's, it's amazing to me. And you know, by the way, Russia really wasn't a world power until, what, 18th century? This is, this is relatively new. But here we are today. Iran, you know, Persia, Babylon, they had their thing. They disappeared off the scene globally until recently became an Islamic Republic in 79. Now they have developing nukes. An alliance of nations will attack Israel. So where are we on, where are we today? Israel's in the land. Anti-Semitism is on the rise globally. There's an alliance of nations that are having meetings all the time, sharing technology, information, and so on, with the goal of wiping Israel off the map. It's a stated obvious goal. Revelation 16 says countries from the east are mentioned. Revelation 16, 12. They will come with a 200 million man army. Revelation 16. 200 million man army. Now who in the world can, can put that many boots on the ground? China and India. 35% of the world's population lives in those two countries alone. That's one out of every three people in the world are from one of those two countries. And again, I remind you, China, until, what, in the last however many decades, really wasn't a factor globally, but they certainly are today. Where are we today? What do you guys think? I'm just telling you what the Bible says, and I'm looking at what's happening today, and I'm going, we're close. It's a real thing. Another thing that is interesting is that we have technology today. Technology that didn't exist. 
Like when you come to Revelation 11, those two witnesses, they die, they lay in the streets of Jerusalem, and it says the whole world is watching their bodies lie on the street in Jerusalem. Now when John wrote that in AD 90, that's impossible to figure out. But now we got, we're just streaming it. It's live news feed. And everybody has an anti-Christmas. That's what it says. Ah, oh, the two witnesses, they're dead, they're dead. And they start giving gifts to each other. They're so happy. And after three and a half days, their bodies rise up and ascend back to heaven. And everybody sees it. Where are we today? I'm just telling you where we're. I'm just reading my Bible and I'm watching the news. Israel's in the land. That is a, I can't emphasize that enough. Another factor that exists today is nuclear proliferation. 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with a fervent heat. That complicates things a lot. I was going to read you another reference, but to be honest with you, it was so graphic I didn't want to. And it comes from Zechariah. Well, I'll just tell you because you're adults and you can handle it. It says their eyes will melt in their head, their tongues will dissolve. Sounds like nuclear to me. I don't know. But that is a factor, and it's a big problem. So that's, that's the, time, the divine timeline given by Daniel to God's people. Okay? To God's people. And Jesus said, I'm coming back, and I'm coming back for you people. He's coming to Jerusalem. My goodness, our eternal home is a new Jerusalem with 12 foundation stones with the name of the apostles on it. So what do we do? Well, we pray for the church throughout the Middle East. We pray that Jew and Arab believers will start to worship together. Oneness equals witness. Oneness equals witness. And I can't imagine that being more true than when a, a Jew and an Arab come together in a, to worship the Jewish Messiah. So pray for laborers, as Val was reminding us, missionaries. Pray for leaders of the churches. I just want to emphasize that. I love the church. I love the church. And I love the church in the world. Pray for the leaders of the churches. All right? That they would feed and tend and grow and mature and get the believers in those places rooted and grounded in God's love. That they'll discern, have discernment and understanding. You know, Val mentioned the opening of Saudi, right? That it's like, you can get a visa in, what's it take, five minutes? It takes longer to fill the thing out. But when you hit send, you get a reply within minutes. There's your visa. Come on in. You know, with that are a lot of cults. They are racing into Saudi just as rapidly and enthusiastically as the Christian churches. That's why we need good churches and good leaders so they can discern what is right and wrong. One last thing, friends, and maybe I'm speaking to myself on this. Don't let your heart grow cold from reading too much news because <laughs> man I have found that to be the case where I'm starting to grow from 
I disagree with you and I'm discouraged with you to I wish you weren't around <laughs> in that office or doing that stuff. We can't let ourselves get there. One thing is clear as I wrap this up is that the United Nations isn't going to save Israel. The European Union isn't going to save Israel. NATO isn't going to save Israel. America is not going to save Israel. The GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, isn't going to save Israel. BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. By the way, you know Iran's joining in the first of the year? BRICS, this little alliance of countries. They're not going to save Israel. Only Jesus is going to save Israel when he comes again. And that's a good reason why he's coming. So in wrapping that up and preparing us for communion, I wanted to just remind you of the reason that we can be sure that the Lord has not forsaken the Jew and that he is still, he's going to fulfill his promise to them ultimately. And his, his great promise is, I want to be your people and I want, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. That, that's the covenant. That's what it was all about. It was relational. I'm your God. You're my people. I love you. God loved, his covenant with them was a covenant of love, all right? It was a covenant that was established out of the love of God's heart for his people, just like the covenant that Jesus made was established out of the love of his heart for us, for all people. God started with a Jew, and he's going to complete that at the end when he comes again. I'm just trying to get that in our mind. One of the great scenes in all of the Bible that makes this so clear is the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet that God had him do a really interesting thing, and that was to marry a woman who was a prostitute, knowing full well that she was going to be unfaithful to him. God wanted Hosea to feel what he feels by his people's unfaithfulness. And so that actually happened. He goes out, he marries this girl, her name's Gomer, weird name, and she lives with him, have a couple kids, right? They have some kids. And then Hosea comes home one day and the kids are sitting there eating Cheerios and, you know, making a mess. And he's like, where's mom? I don't know. She went out this morning. She hasn't come home. Hmm. She didn't come home for a long time. She went back on the street. Hosea chapter 3. One of the most beautiful expressions of God's love based on his covenant of love with his people. He said to Hosea, go again. Love a woman who's loved by another man. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel who look to other gods. So, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. You know what that means? That means he went to the slave market 
That's what that's indicating. His wife had gotten so off track and her life had fallen apart. She ended up offering herself to be purchased by another. You know, it's a well-known fact in the ancient world that slaves were stripped naked when they were sold. So I want you to picture that in your mind because it really happened. That prophet Hosea went down to the place where humans were trafficked. And he gets there and there's his wife standing on the block covering up naked. And the bidding starts. And he kept offering 15 shekels and 15 bushels of barley. And he bought her. He bought her back to himself. And she became his. I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. Afterward, the Lord said, that's exactly what I'm going to do with Israel. I'm going to bring them back to myself so they can see that I love them. So that's uh, Elizabeth. Would you please come up and we'll just prepare for communion here. I'm sorry we've run a little late here this morning, so I'll be brief. Um, as we prepare for communion, I do want to take advantage of that story of Hosea, though. I want you to reimagine it because it's the gospel. What Hosea did for that, for his wife, is the gospel. She was lost and in a slave market. So let's replay that story imaginatively and imagine that God is the auctioneer and humanity is standing on the market, guilty of sin and shame. And he says, Who will offer? And Jesus steps forward and he says, I'll buy them with my own blood, sold to the Messiah. And he brings this home and he says, you're mine, and now we're in a relationship together. And I'm washing away all that sin and shame. So let's stand and we'll pray and covenant of love was established and we have the elements of that here this morning Lord cracker representing your body juice representing your blood that you gave you bought us with a price you who were rich became poor so that we could become rich and made right in your sight I pray Lord as your church files up we'll worship we'll say Words will be expressed from everybody in the room who believes. Words will be expressed of confession, of thanksgiving, whatever's necessary. So come upon us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, I think you know the routine. Just file up. Go back on the outside to your seats. If you file up through the middle and then return from the outside... Hold the juice and cracker and we'll all partake together.
Hey, Oz, let's get the words to just as I am on the screen. I don't know if you know Billy Graham. You know who he is? He was one of the greatest evangelists of modern time. And they would sing this song at every time he had a crusade at the altar call. I responded to that once, singing that song. Let's just sing it in worship. And when we've sung a couple verses, we'll partake together. Take together, friends. Cracker and juice.
Lord, thank you for the word of God. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.